This morning, if you look at your bulletin, you'll notice that we're taking a break from 1 Peter. We are going to the Old Testament. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6. Last week, as, as we've been working our way through 1 Peter, we looked at verses 15 and 16 where Peter says this, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. In many ways, I believe that today in our churches, we have lost this message. Churches don't want to tell people to be holy in their behavior. They just want to tell nice stories and send people on their way with uplifting messages that make them feel good. But no challenge for them to turn from sin and to live holy lives. That's not popular. It's not popular in the evangelical church today. And I believe that there are three reasons for why this message has been lost. Reason number one is that churches have embraced pragmatism. Pragmatism that aims at making people feel good about themselves so that they will continue to come back again and again. If we tell people to be holy, that is to turn from sin and to live in accord with God's Word, to live a righteous life, the belief amongst those churches that have embraced pragmatism is that that message will drive people away. Instead of getting them in the doors, which is what they want. That's what they're most concerned about. Just get people in the doors. And so they've made up their mind that people don't want to come to church to hear about their sin. Or God's judgment. Or God's wrath. And so these churches embrace the world's ways instead of God's ways. And so what happens then to the people who are sitting in the pews? They don't live holy lives. They don't turn from sin. They don't embrace righteousness and seek to live a righteous, God-honoring life. Instead, they justify their sin and they live in disobedience to God's Word and they live just like the world. Why? That's what's modeled to them from the pulpit. And they're never told from the pulpit to turn from their sin and to live in obedience to God's Word because these churches have become pragmatic. There's a second reason, reason number two, is the belief that telling people to turn from their sin is legalism. You'll hear that from people. The people will say, if you continue to tell people that they're sinners and that they need to live a holy life before God, well, that's legalism. You're being a legalist. Says 
Somehow people believe that in telling God's children to be obedient to Him, they have it made up in their mind that it's legalism. Well, if that's legalism, then Jesus was a legalist. Because He commanded obedience. He said in John 14, 15, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. In Luke eleven twenty eight, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and observe it. And in Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Me. He must die to self and live according to Christ's commands. Is Jesus a legalist because He commanded obedience and holy living? Of course not. But there are people who don't want to have their sin confronted and be told to turn from their sin. And so they'll call you a legalist if you do that. And pastors don't want that label so they don't preach holiness. But then there's a third reason why this message has been lost. And it's because we have lost sight of God's holiness. We've lost sight of God's holiness. Not only is the message of pursuing personal holiness not popular, the message of God's holiness isn't popular either. And because God's holiness is not preached, there's no fear of God to pursue holiness. Many people think of God as some genie in a bottle who will just give me what I want. Come to God and He'll give you whatever your heart desires. Or some see Him as a, a big teddy bear in the sky who will just take me as I am. And you hear that in many churches today in their slogans. They'll, they'll use this slogan, just come as you are. Just come as you are. Sure, come as you are, but my desire for you is that you would leave here different. They want you to come as you are and leave as you are. Yes, come as a broken, wretched sinner, but leave here with a repentant heart that's forgiven of your sin and desires to live a holy and pleasing life before our God. That's my desire for you. That's what I want for you. And one of the ways that you and I will be motivated and encouraged to live a holy and righteous life is to be confronted with God's holiness. In fact, isn't that what Peter did in 1 Peter? That's exactly what he did. He said, be like the Holy One who called you. Be like Him. And then He commanded holiness and then quoted Leviticus and said, Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. 
He motivated them to pursue holiness by putting God's holiness before them and reminding them that God himself is holy. And this morning, I want to do the same thing. I want us to see God's holiness and to be reminded of how holy our God is. And we'll do this by looking at a man who had a vision of the holiness of God. And I want us to see his response as he was confronted with God's holiness. So if you haven't already, take your Bibles and open them to Isaiah chapter 6. And follow along as I read beginning in verse 1. Isaiah says this, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Now, in order to better understand what's going on here, we have to understand the context. We must understand the context of this passage. And we would better understand the context by understanding who Isaiah was. Who was Isaiah? Well, Isaiah was a prophet of God who was sent by God to preach to God's people, primarily to the southern kingdom of Judah. And his ministry was centered around Jerusalem there in Judah. And in his preaching, he warned Judah of God's judgment and called the people to repentance what he was to do. He preached during the reign of four different kings. We see this back in chapter 1 and verse 1 where he tells us there were four different kings during his prophetic ministry. Those kings were Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Four different kings. But Isaiah's calling to be a prophet began at a time when Judah's prominent king, Uzziah, was dying. In fact, Isaiah tells us there in verse 1 of chapter 6 that it was in the year of King Uzziah's death. Now, it's helpful to understand who Uzziah was. 
so that we can get the context of Isaiah's calling here. You see, Uzziah was a good king. Judah had good kings and they had bad kings. A lot of bad kings. But they had some good kings. And Uzziah was one of those good kings in Judah. And he reigned for 52 years. It's a long time to be a king. He was a good king for most part of his reign. And while he was reigning, Judah really prospered under his leadership. There was a lot of prosperity in Judah during Uzziah's reign. However, 15 years before his death, Uzziah became prideful and he entered into the temple to go and burn incense that he wasn't supposed to do. God judged him for it by striking him with leprosy. King Uzziah was struck with leprosy because of his pride and going into the temple and offering incense when that was not his job to do. Then his son Jotham took over as king, and it was during this time that Judah was in a decline as a nation. They prospered for a while, but then the nation began to decline. Early on in Uzziah's reign, Judah had great peace and prosperity in the land. But toward the end of his reign, the nation took a turn for the worse. There was idolatry, disobedience among the people as they began to turn against God and His ways. Isaiah tells us all about this in chapters 1 through 5. But when their great king finally dies, it's almost as if all hope is now lost in the land, in Judah. And there's a sense from the people of, what are we going to do now? Our king, who has reigned for 52 years, is now dead. Our good king, who reigned over the land when we had peace and prosperity, he is now dead. And what are we going to do? Our king is gone. And the people begin to decline morally. And the nation is becoming weak and decaying. But it's during this time, in the year of King Uzziah's death, that Isaiah has a vision. Which is what we see here in chapter 6. And as we look at this vision and this calling upon Isaiah's life, we're going to see two points here this morning. First of all, we're going to see the vision of God's holiness. And then second, we'll see the response to God's holiness. The vision of God's holiness and the response to God's holiness. So let's look first at the vision of God's holiness found in verses 1 through 3. Notice again in verse 1, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. After he tells us that it's in the year that, of King Uzziah's death, he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Now, what's amazing here, as Isaiah tells us about this vision that he has, is that he has just told us about a death. 
a death of the king, the great king, Uzziah, who's been ruling and reigning in Judah. The, the earthly king of Judah is dead, but the heavenly king is what? Alive. He is alive. God is still on His throne. When all things are falling apart around us, God is still on His throne. Notice that Isaiah says there that he saw the Lord. The Lord. Notice Lord is not in all capital letters. If you look down at verse 3, Isaiah says there, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And you see how the, the word Lord there is in all caps. Lord in all caps in the Hebrew is the name of God, Yahweh. It's Yahweh. It's God's name, I am. And it's reflective of God's nature. He is who He is, and there is no other. He is God. But here in verse 1, Isaiah says, Lord, and Lord is not in all caps because in Hebrew it's the word Adonai. It's not Yahweh there. It's Adonai. This is not God's name, but it is His title. It's a title of God. And what Isaiah is referring to here is God's sovereignty. He saw the Sovereign One on the throne, the Lord. What is Isaiah saying here? He's saying that God is the Sovereign King, not Uzziah, not your earthly king, in which you had time of peace and prosperity. Uh, he's not the Sovereign One. No, the Lord is the Sovereign One who sits on His throne. And in the year that Judah lost their human king, Isaiah saw the heavenly king. The sovereign king. Now, that word Lord there also means master or owner. Master or owner. And as the master, what then is man's responsibility to him? Obedience. Obedience. That's our responsibility. To obey our Master. It's what we've been called to do. As one commentator says, the Master has the right to expect obedience. God has the right to expect obedience from His people. Remember, He's Lord. He is Master. We are not. We don't get to make up our own rules to follow. Our responsibility is to submit to His rule as the master over our lives. Notice where our master was. Notice Isaiah tells us he's sitting on a throne. I love this picture here because while the people of Judah are in somewhat of a frenzy because their human king is dead, God is seen here as sitting on a throne in complete control. God's not running around the temple. He's not going, oh no, what do we do now? Uzziah is dead. The great king is gone. No, 
our master, our Lord, is sitting where? On his throne. In complete control. Not wondering what's going to happen next. God's not panicking as if things are out of his control. It's all under his control. Everything is happening under his control as he sits on his throne. And then notice Isaiah says in verse 1 that God is lofty and exalted. He is lofty or, or high. And he's the exalted one. That is, there is no one greater than him. There is no one higher than him. He is the greatest in all the land. And while your kings and other people of prominence may fall from their thrones or even die, no one can shake or move God from His throne. No one can. He is the high and lofty one. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. Not some, all. All areas of our lives. He rules over. He is the sovereign one. Over our nation today, He is the sovereign one who rules over all things. I know we have an election coming up. And people are beginning to panic. Listen church, don't panic. We've got no reason to panic. Our God is on His throne and no one can take him off of his throne. Everything is happening under his sovereign rule. He is the high and exalted one. The psalmist says in Psalm 103:19, "The Lord has established his throne in the heavens." I love this. He has established his own throne. God didn't need to be voted in. He didn't need to be born into a royal family so that he could take over the throne. No, God established his own throne as the lofty and exalted one. He is the king. He is the sovereign one. And notice what Isaiah tells us at the end of verse 1. He says, with the train of his robe filling the temple now, why would Isaiah point out God's robe filling the temple? Well, one commentator tells us kings and other important officials customarily wore long robes as a sign of their authority. It's a sign of God's authority. God's robe here signifies that He is the one who is in authority. That He's in charge, which means we are not. We're not in charge. Notice what part of his, of his robe is filling the temple. Notice Isaiah tells us there, it's only the train. It's only the train. And what the Hebrew seems to be telling us is that it is just the seam of his robe that is filling the temple here. That God is so great and his glory and majesty are so great that only the seam of his robe could fill the temple there. We also see that since the train of his robe fills the temple, notice this, there is no room for anyone else. 
There's no room for anyone else. There's only one king, and he's it. No one can come up next to him and put their own throne next to his. They can't. There's no room for them. His throne is the only throne, and there is room for no other king. It's him alone. Now, who is this king who is sitting on the throne that Isaiah sees? I'm glad you asked. Listen to what John tells us in John 12, 41. He says this, These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. And who is the him that John is writing about in John 12, 41? It's Christ. It's Christ. This here is the appearance of Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. He is the one who is sitting on the throne. He is the king. In fact, as we went through Philippians, we saw there where Paul tells us that what is given to him? The name that is above all names. And what is that name? Lord. He is the Lord. He is the king who reigns over all. And because he is the king, what is our responsibility? Obedience. Obedience to him. And not only obedience, but also worship. In fact, look at verse 2. Notice what Isaiah says there. He says, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, who are these seraphim that Isaiah tells us about? Well, the word seraph means burning ones. It means burning ones. And this is the only passage where these seraphim are are mentioned. But the vision that Isaiah would have of them is that they are some kind of bright, flaming creature. Some kind of angelic, spiritual being who is there around the throne of God. And notice what Isaiah tells us about them. He says that they have six wings. Six wings. Now what's the purpose of these six wings that these seraphim have? Well, Isaiah tells us that two were used to cover his face. Two of the wings of, the, of a seraph was used to cover his face. And what Isaiah is telling us here is that God's glory is so great that these bright, blazing, angelic creatures cannot look at the blazing glory of God. They must cover their face. That reminds us of Moses on the mountain, right? Moses wanted to see God's glory. And what did God say? God said in Exodus 33, 20, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. You can't see my glory, Moses. No one can see my glory and live. My glory is so great and marvelous. 
God's glory is so great that even these blazing angelic beings have to cover their face as they stand there in the presence of God. Then two were used to cover his feet. It's not certain why the seraphim would cover his feet, but some see it as a sign of humility. That the place where these seraphim were was holy ground. This was holy ground in the temple where these seraphim were. And when these seraphim were there, they had to cover their feet because the ground beneath them was holy ground. The ground beneath them was holy ground, which reminds us again of Moses, doesn't it? When God called him at the burning bush, in Exodus 3, 5, God said to Moses, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is what? Holy ground. It's holy ground. Why was the ground holy? Listen, it had nothing to do with the ground itself. Nothing. It was holy because the presence of God was there. That's why it was holy. And when God's presence shows up, everything there becomes holy. And even the ground around the throne of God is holy. Now, I know I said that they were standing, but notice I told you that God's robe was filling the temple, right? God's robe was filling the temple. And so, were they standing there? Well, actually, no, they weren't standing there. Because notice what he says, what Isaiah tells us about what the seraphim do with the next two wings. Notice what it says there. With two, he what? He flew. He flew. And this shows their duty, that these seraphim were servants who flew around in order to carry out God's will. That was their job around the throne of God is to carry out God's will. Each seraphim was able to hover like a helicopter and was waiting to serve the Lord. To do whatever the Lord wanted him to do. And Isaiah saw these seraphim there around the throne of God. And what were they doing as they're there around the throne of God? Notice what Isaiah says in verse 3. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah not only saw what was going on around the throne of God, but he also heard what was being said around the throne of God. And there's a great chorus that is being given as these seraphim give praise and worship to God. And what is it that they're saying as they're praising God? Look at what they say. Holy, holy, holy. Now, what does that word holy there mean? A lot of people think of holy as something that is pure, something of moral perfection. And that is an, an accurate understanding of holy, but there's more to this word than just moral perfection especially in relation to what these seraphim are saying here. 
As R.C. Sproul says, when the seraphim sang their song, they were saying far more than that God was purity, purity, purity. There's a lot more to this word holy than just that. That word holy there means that God is separated. He's separate from others. He's separate from us and from all creation. He is Lord and He is not man like we are. He's a transcendent God and He is far greater than we are. He is holy, holy, holy. And notice that the seraphim say holy three times in a row. Why did the seraphim repeat holy three times? Well, some think of it as talking about the Trinity here. The Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are holy, holy, holy. And while that is true, that is not why the seraphim say this. A better understanding of this repetition here is to show emphasis. There's repetition that's there to show emphasis. In fact, the Jews had a way of showing emphasis for something, and they would do it by repeating that word multiple times. Remember when Jesus was teaching, and he would say, Truly, truly, I tell you. Why does he do that? He wants to show emphasis, to show emphasis, to emphasize his teaching. Truly, truly, listen up, pay attention. I want to emphasize what I am saying here. There's emphasis on this. And the seraphim here are emphasizing the holiness of God as they repeat holy three times. And because our God is holy, the glory of God is always on display. In fact, notice what the seraphim sing out. They say the whole earth is full of His glory. The whole earth. That is, there is nowhere on earth or beyond that God's glory is not on display. In fact, isn't that what Paul told us in Romans 1.20? For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen. His glory is on display everywhere. It's always on display. The whole earth is full of His glory. His holiness is transcendent, and His glory is seen everywhere in the universe. There is no one like Him. He is above all. He is sacred. He is set apart. Our God is holy. Holy, holy, holy. And that's the vision that Isaiah has there around the throne of God in the temple as he sees the holiness of God. Let's look second at the response to God's holiness. We just saw the vision of God's holiness. Let's look now at the response to God's holiness. Look at verse 4 and notice what Isaiah says there. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. 
Now, this is amazing because before we see Isaiah's response to God's holiness, we see the response of the foundations of the throne room in heaven as the seraphim sing of God's holiness. As they sing of God's holiness, the whole foundation begins to shake. I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake, but growing up in California, I had my fair share of earthquakes. In fact, I still remember the 6.4 Northridge earthquake that toppled freeways and buildings. And we lived about 40 miles from the epicenter of that. And I remember waking up while the whole house is shaking. And while the whole house is shaking, there is this fear that comes over you as the ground beneath you begins to shake. And Isaiah sees here in his vision a shaking of the throne room of God as the seraphim sing out about the holiness of God. Then he sees, notice, the temple was filling with smoke. We're not sure what this smoke is about here, but smoke in Scripture is often representative of God's presence, and so it could be symbolizing that. Or it's possibly the smoke that is rising from the altar that is there in the temple that we see down in verse 6. There's an altar. And so possibly it's the smoke that's rising from the altar that's there. But whatever it is, this place is shaking and it's filling with smoke. And as this is happening, notice what Isaiah's response is. Look at verse 5. Notice what he says there. Then I said, woe is me for I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This here is amazing. This is amazing. Isaiah, after seeing the holiness of God, calls God's judgment down upon himself. He says, woe is me. To pronounce a woe is to pronounce judgment. One commentator says, in this one piercing utterance lies his whole self-condemnation. Woe is me. After seeing the holiness of God, he condemns himself. Self-condemnation. Notice Isaiah didn't respond with, oh, I just need more self-esteem. Or more self-love. Or more self-confidence. No, this is self-condemnation. This is his response to God's holiness. And after he says, woe is me, notice he says, for I am ruined. I'm ruined. This is the prophet Isaiah. And he says, I am ruined. I am a ruined man. 
How many people walk out of churches today saying, I am ruined for I have just been confronted with the holiness of God? Probably not many. But that was Isaiah's response as he was confronted with the holiness of God. And then he gives us the reason for his self-condemnation. Notice he says there, because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What does Isaiah do here? He recognizes his sin and he understands how great of a sinner he is when he sees the Holy King. Now, why does he talk about his lips? Notice he talks about his lips here. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Why does he talk about the lips? What's he saying there? He's saying that he has a dirty mouth, a filthy mouth. And remember, Isaiah is a prophet of God. And he says, I've got a filthy mouth. And he declares that he has a dirty mouth, and so do all of those who are there living with him. All the people in the land, them too. Where does this dirty mouth come from? I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from a dirty heart. It comes from a dirty heart. In fact, listen to Luke 6.45. Luke 6.45 says, The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. His lips are unclean because his heart is unclean. And he recognizes that as he's confronted with the holiness of God. And he says, it's the same thing for all the people around me. Those there in Judah, they are all sinners. Unclean sinners. All of us are. And Isaiah here recognizes the sinfulness of his own heart as he sees the holiness of God. And he recognizes that he wasn't able to praise God like the righteous seraphim could. Because notice what they said. Holy, holy, holy. But what does he say? Woe is me. Woe is me. He couldn't open his mouth to give praise to God. Instead, he opens his mouth declaring how wretched and sinful he is. But he didn't just recognize his sinfulness, but he also recognized his need to be cleansed. And look at what happens next. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Now, how did these seraphim know what to do? We don't know. Maybe maybe God gave them a nod. Go. 
gave him a command. Go do what my will is. Because that's what the seraphim always did. They did the will of God. We aren't told, but but the seraphim did God's bidding as he flew with the tongs and he took the burning coal from the altar and he put it on Isaiah's lips. And what does this symbolize here? It symbolizes cleansing. This symbolizes cleansing. This is why the seraph says, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. And notice this. With the coal touching his lips, what do you think that felt like? Painful. A burning coal touching your lips? It's painful. This was painful for Isaiah to go through. But in the end, it did what? It healed him. It healed him. The pain brought about healing. Listen, church, true repentance is painful. In true repentance, you agonize over your sinful heart. Oh God, I have sinned against you. Oh God, what a a wretched man I am. As the Apostle Paul says, And you battle against the flesh that still desires to sin against God. And you recognize that you have to die to self in your old ways. That's painful. God says that if you come to Him in true repentance, you know what He will do? He will cleanse you. He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll cleanse you. You see, God is not only a holy God, but God is also a forgiving God. He's a forgiving God. You see, God's holiness should not cause us to run from Him, but to run to Him. You see, that's oftentimes why people run from God. It's because of their own sin. That's why in in membership here, we want to know who's here. Because if people aren't here for a couple weeks in a row, there's most likely something going on in their life. Why aren't they here at church? I'll tell you, one of the reasons why people don't show up to church, you know why? Sin. Sin in their own heart. Sin in their own life. It drives them away. I don't want to go hang out with God's people, be confronted with my sin. Then i got to deal with this. But listen, church, that's the best place to be. Don't allow sin to take you away from God. When you sin, run to Him. Because He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. Yes, He is a holy and righteous God, but He's also a forgiving God. And He's ready to forgive. 
And he will forgive all who come to him with a repentant heart. That's what God does here in Isaiah's heart. Notice again, the seraphim says there, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Isaiah didn't deserve this. He didn't deserve any of this. He just acknowledged his sin and confessed it before God. And what did God do? He cleansed him. He forgave him. And isn't that a beautiful picture of the gospel? What a beautiful picture of the gospel. That God will cleanse all who turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Who took the pain for us. Who went to a cross to make the payment and take God's wrath upon Himself. Was the cross painful? Oh, you bet it was. But our Lord, our Master, He did that for us. So that we could be forgiven of our sins and be in right relationship with our holy God. And all who come to Him in repentance and faith will be healed and have eternal life. (laughs) That's the glory of the gospel. Now, to be clear here, this is not Isaiah's conversion. This is not Isaiah's conversion. He was already saved. This is his commission to ministry to go and preach God's word to the people. But even as a believer, he was confronted with God's holiness and he still recognizes that there is sin that he needs to repent of. And when he does that, he's forgiven and ready to be used by God. In fact, notice what he says in verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us. Then I said, here am I, send me. Isaiah has seen the throne of God. He's listened to the singing of the seraphim. He's seen the shaking of the temple. He's felt the burning coal on his lips. And he's heard the voice of the seraph declaring that his sin has been forgiven. And now Isaiah hears the voice of God saying, Whom shall I send? You see, Isaiah goes from a man who was humbled and broken before God to a man on a mission, ready to be used by God. He was repentant. And now he's restored And he realizes and recognizes what God has done for him. And he's now ready to go and speak of the wonders of God because of what God has done for him. But notice this. He isn't able to hear God's voice until he's what? Until he's cleansed. Until he's cleansed. You won't hear the voice of God if you're walking in sin. Repent of that sin. Confess it before God. Turn from it and be cleansed. Be forgiven. And then you'll hear the voice of God. 
Notice the second part of God's question there in verse 8. He says, and who will go for us? Now this is the Trinity. This here is the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he says, who will go and be a mouthpiece for us? And how does Isaiah respond to God's question? Notice Isaiah doesn't say, well, it depends on what I have to do and what I have to say. (laughs) I'll go, God, if my message is Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Isaiah doesn't do that. In fact, that's not even the message that Isaiah is given to go and tell the people, right? He's to go and pronounce judgment upon them, to call them to repentance, to a people who will not even listen to him. God tells him that. They won't listen to you, but keep preaching. And notice how he responds. He says, send me. Send me. Notice he doesn't say, here am I, I will go. Or here I am, I will go and tell them God. No, he says, send me. You see, he's still humble and submissive before God. He's just humbled himself before God in repentance, right? Confessing his sin. Woe is me, for I'm a ruined man. He's got to humble himself before the holy and righteous God. And now even in response, he's still humbled before God. And he says, God, send me. You do it. You send me. You do the work in my life. I'm just a vessel ready to be used by you, God. I can't go in my own strength. I can't go with my my own understanding. God, here I am. Send me. He recognizes that he cannot go unless God sends him. He can't go out and do it all on his own, especially after seeing the vision of the holiness of God. He still understands that he's a man under submission to the sovereign king. He recognizes that God has taken a dirty, foul-mouthed man and cleansed him. But as he goes out, he still must remain under the sovereign rule of the mighty king. What a glorious response to the holiness of God. In closing, once, as an experiment, the great scientist Isaac Newton stared at the image of the sun reflected in a mirror. The brightness of the sun burned into his retina, causing him to suffer temporary blindness. He wrote about this incident and he said this, I used all means to divert my imagination from the sun, 
But if I thought upon him, I presently saw his picture, though I was in the dark. In fact, he even hid himself for three days in a darkened room. But still, the bright spot would not fade from his vision. Church, may this vision of God's holiness be burned into us. May it be burned into us. May this vision and understanding of God's holiness never fade from our vision. But may it motivate us to pursue holiness in our lives and live in obedience to our King. Let me ask you this morning, how will you respond to God's holiness? My prayer for you is that you'll be impacted by God's holiness and live a life of worship and obedience to Him as He has commanded us. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this vision that the great prophet Isaiah was given of your holiness. Lord, we're amazed. We're amazed that you would show us your holiness and how magnificent and amazing you are through a vision that you've given to the prophet Isaiah. Lord, as we have studied this wonderful passage here this morning, Lord, may this vision of your holiness be burned into us. May it impact our lives, our hearts, And motivate us to live in obedience to you. For that's what you've called us to do. To be holy for you are holy. Father, we thank you that as a holy and righteous God who has every right to condemn everyone who has sinned against you, all sinners, every person to an eternity in hell, we thank you that you have forgiven us that you've cleansed us from our sin. That you sent your one and only Son to come and be the payment for us. To make the sacrifice that none of us could make. So that our sins could be paid for. And Lord, we thank you that he rose again. As we read in John chapter 20 this morning. That our King, our Lord, our Master is alive and He is on His throne. You, God, are in control of all things. Lord, help us to trust You. And help us to live our lives 
changed this morning by your holiness. And may it all be for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.